Well, so I think part of the issue is really how are you micro-segmenting? A lot of that stuff is still just demographics. Mm -hmm. And demographics is just, it's just not a great way to evaluate anybody. Hello and welcome to the New New Thing podcast. It's a podcast about all things experimentation. Here on the New New Thing, we're looking for conversations that inspire marketers. We're looking for motivational content and we're having conversations with experts across all industries from coffee roasters to scientists to innovators and today a professor. I'm your host, RJ Tallier, and today we are really lucky to be joined by our co-host, Sharman Kent. Hello. <laughs> She's a Quantifies content manager, and we are delighted to welcome uh, research analyst, marketing professor, data wrangler, and all things great, Dr. Kim Saxon. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for asking. I'm super excited. Yeah, we're, we're, uh, we are really, really lucky to have uh, Kim, especially because she's got a nice, unique blend of corporate and academic experience in marketing. She's really um, uh, researched in detail, lots of different uh, approaches to uh, that make a lot of sense for our listeners and experimentation. So I'll stop talking. I, I want to learn all about you and your approach to marketing and experimentation. So let's start just with a little bit of your background. T tell us about uh, your background. Sure. What some people might not know is that I actually went to MIT for my undergraduate degree. And originally, I was going to be in computer science. Mm. I was I learned how to code. <laughs> I haven't coded for 25 years. But um, when I got there, I kind of discovered business. And I actually end up getting my bachelor's degree in marketing from mm. MIT. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so that makes me kind of an oddball in the world of marketing, because I came at it from a very data and quantitative oriented approach. Um, and then I, when I got out of um, MIT, I, I got hired into this really cool boutique consulting firm in DC area. So I was one of the Beltway Bandits mm -hmm. um, when I um, first started. So I didn't start in corporate America. I actually started in consulting. And that is where I met my husband, so um, Todd Saxton, who's also a Kelly professor in uh, strategy and entrepreneurship. And uh, we've been get together for 29 years. So we've run our businesses together. We do our research together. Um, and then, of course, we have our separate spheres of influence. And so we worked for about four or five different consulting firms looking at um, competitor analysis, acquisition analysis, trying to predict market trends. I think I did about 10,000 phone interviews. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and oh. we got to the place in consulting where the only way you could get ahead was to start doing sales, which mm. meant a lot of traveling. And so um, we, I decided it was time to do the mommy thing. So I took a time out. Uh, we were in Reading, Pennsylvania, where the home of the Reading Railroad from Monopoly. Oh, yeah. Literally. Um, and I started doing the mommy thing and, uh, that lasted about six months. <laughs> it was like straight out of Diane Keaton's baby boo, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> I made a quilt from scratch. I repainted the whole first floor. I started putting up, uh, applesauce. Oh boy. You really are. <laughs> <laughs> that is the mommy thing. And then I was like, okay, so now I got to get out of here. Thing, um, and so I actually took a job as in the leasing office for the, um, outlet that got built on the corporate headquarters of the Reading Railroad, um, in the Reading Railroad terminal. So that was that was pretty neat and different um, and then we decided to go back and get our PhD so taking all my consulting knowledge my husband and I started our own consulting firm that we could do on the road we headed out to Bloomington um, so we went from you know six figures to uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I think as a as a PhD student, he got paid eleven thousand dollars a year. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that was a pretty big change with a baby, and um, he got started. And um, I was like, okay, this consulting thing is cool. I've got money coming in, but I'm talking to this baby, and so like I was not intellectually stimulated. Yeah. <laughs> so I went back and got my PhD at the same time, and so. At the point where I finished my PhD, which is usually a four or five year process, um, I got headhunted to Walker Information to mm -hmm. come in as their vice president of uh, research sciences and to help them develop some new market research projects, uh, products really, mm -hmm. not consulting services, trying to productize things. So I was on the early end of translating services into products. And I came up with this really cool product that would measure corporate reputation and we um, sold it to Coke and Brown Foreman and Bell South and all these kinds of companies. So it was pretty cool. Nike, we did their research in their Southwest, wow. Southeast Asia labor crisis. So oh, wow. that was pretty cool. <clears throat> um, and because of that, I got headhunted um, to Lilly um, to come into their organization and bring technical expertise. Mm -hmm. So Lilly really hired me for my credibility as a PhD market researcher. Um, and uh, and I found corporate America was fun. Like it was a big change for me to from consulting and small companies to this big corporation. And I would say I thought I was pretty successful. I had two promotions in four years, so um, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, and more importantly, I was really excited that we brought segmentation mm -hmm, to Lilly. Mm -hmm. So they had never segmented until I got there. And then I got to experiment with all the segmentation tools that are known in the world. Cool. So that was pretty cool, including hiring the best experts in the world. Huh. And then they reorged. So <laughs> even though I had the expertise, I didn't have time with the company and I lost my job. Oh. <laughs> so I was like, whoa. I found another job in Lilly, which was fine. But then I realized that the corporate thing wasn't really working for me. And so I moved over to a specialty pharmaceutical company as the head of marketing. So instead of for one project I had at Lilly, I had 33 presentations, including up to the top management team. And when I was at the specialty pharmaceutical company, I would say, oh, I have this cool idea. And I'd walk next door to the vice president of sales and say, could we execute this? And then I would get to roll it out with the sales force. It was like so incredibly oh, yeah. hands-on. Yep. It was totally fun. And then they reorged that company. <laughs> <laughs> and my job moved to Cincinnati and I commuted to Cincinnati three days a week, which is a challenge with a family because yeah. then we had two girls. Um, and finally, um, Todd said to me, you know, how about a quality of life change? <laughs> Yeah. You know, you can do this teaching thing. You're really good at it. You've been teaching yes. a lot of groups for a while. Why don't you just come back and do teaching full time? Yeah. And then I was uh, very excited that Kelly, my alma mater, um, took me in and let me do my thing here. And that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years. I love it. I'm sure our listeners can kind of hear it in your in the way you talk about it. But Kim is smiling as she's talking <laughs> through these. And it's so fun to hear someone with your level of expertise and all the nerdy things you're talking about in terms of data. And like when she was talking about segmentation, man, that, that smile is beaming. So uh, it's pretty uh, fun to see all of that, uh, that enthusiasm for, for your work. 
is really, really coming through, and, and not only in your voice, but just in the way that uh, you're talking about it. Um, I, I am. I, I took a look at uh, your resume, and one of the things that was that stuck out to me is that you spent some time in Brisbane, actually. Yeah. And uh, I, uh, my sister studied at uh, UQ and University of Queensland in Brisbane. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah. So this is partly why I think academia is great. So the, the challenge I had when I was at Lilly is that you know, as I had a team and as I got promoted, I had less control of my time. Mm. You know, my, my husband said to me, like, "When are you going to be able to say when you want to work?" I mean, I was in meetings all day, you know, eight to seven. I'd go home and do email for a couple hours. Um, so when we switched to academia, academia has this lovely thing called sabbaticals. And so after we were um, there for a couple years, we were uh, honored that we were chosen to take a sabbatical in um, Brisbane. And so we took a teaching job at the UQ. Uh, oh, man. And we got to live in Brisbane for about six months. Um, and of course, from there, we went down to New Zealand. And then we also went over to Thailand, um, took the girls with us. They were in high school. So that was um, pretty fun for them to see something that was completely uh, new and different. And what was really interesting is that Australia exports its um, degrees. So because um, college is paid for by the government. Mm -hmm. So the university doesn't make any money on its own students. That's just like, you know, the status quo. So instead they reach out into all of Asia and try and get Asians to come over and take yeah. um, the courses. So I had a course where I had 19 students and nine different cultures. Wow. That was pretty amazing. Particularly I had some Germans who were in it and some Chinese. And let's just say that they didn't approach business in the same way. Yeah. But Australia is fantastic. So we were there in the middle of the drought. And then after we left, that whole area has been completely flooded. Oh, wow. So in that sort of wild climate. Yeah. Whatever you want to call it that's going on. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Well, what a, what a, uh, that's a special place uh, for me. It sounds like it's yeah. for you as well. We loved it. Yeah. Um, well, so I want to get kind of uh, deep into some of your research and one of the cool things I think that you've done in your career um, as well as academic research is a lot of what marketers want to do, right? right. Marketers are all after the new, new thing. They're, well, they want to try new things and um, learn what works and what doesn't work. Um, you've actually done that in extensive, extensive research as well as um, just executing on, on the marketing side. So one of your uh, recent papers is all about, uh, the, it's a deep dive into marketing segmentation for video games. Um, you're testing how males react to things, females, I mean, all sorts of stats and stuff. Can you talk a little bit about that paper, the approach and what you learned? Yeah, so the beauty, and I didn't realize this at the time, but the beauty of taking um, a, a period of time in corporate America after I had my PhD is I got to take what I had learned and start to think about how to apply it and when you work with a large pharmaceutical company, you have large budgets to work with, which is the best way to be able to experiment. <laughs> um, and so when I got to Lilly, um, they really didn't use segmentation at all. I mean, sort of, they had a demographic segmentation. So they would have one message for primary care physicians and another message for specialists. And they were at that time only beginning to talk to patients. So most of what Lilly's marketing did was talking to doctors. And we said, you know, we think there's something more sophisticated that could be done here. And the pharmaceutical industry has a lot of behavior data. I don't know if everyone realizes that. They get doctor 
prescribing by doctor um, is available. And so we just started with some very basic, like let's just um, analyze behavioral patterns. And um, we found that that worked pretty well. So then we started stepping it up. Well, what if we did a survey um, and I could get some fairly large populations like you know, 500 or 1,000 people and I could lay in their behavioral data. So over a two-year period, I ended up running segmentation projects on eight different product categories. And then we moved into patients. And so I could kind of see what was going on in terms of how patients approach healthcare. That was, you know, pretty interesting. So <clears throat> Lily had this philosophy that everybody that a drug could only have one main message like the the positioning of the drug had to be the same for everybody so when i left lily i wanted to test that hypothesis and so we actually got all the ads for doctors and for um, patients and we content analyzed them to look and see and we had all of the market share data as well um, and we could put these two things together and what we discovered is that when you had the same message for patients and doctors uh it was bad mm. <laughs> it was and so you're like well wait a minute that makes perfect sense the whole idea of segmentation and targeting is that different segments need a different message and so of course patients and doctors aren't the same they're going to need different messages the theory had been that because they have to talk they should be able to talk about the same thing so now we've learned that right so that sort of took away a myth in that marketplace they thought, well, if you step back, you still have this problem of do you need similar or different messages when you go to market um, with a, another kind of a product? And traditionally, what academics teach is you pick your target segment, and if you want to have multiple segments, you have to vary the four Ps for each segment. So that means you'd have a different product, you'd sell it in different places with different pricing and different messaging. Well, we looked at expensive products to develop. So that's great when you're developing widgets and it's not very hard to develop one shampoo for men or a different shampoo for women. But when you're going to develop a movie or a video game, a video game is minimum of $50 million to develop. And right now, maybe even upwards of $200 million. You can't have one for women and one for men or one for one segment and one for another segment. You have to think about how do I hook multiple segments at the same time for this product. And so we, at the time, naively picked video games because we knew that men and women liked different things in games. Traditionally, men like, and particularly American men, like first-person shooter games, right? Got to go out there and beat them up. <laughs> <laughs> it's so awesome. And traditionally, women have liked community and relationship building. You know, it kind of gives into that stereotype of the nurturer. Which is not to say they don't want to win, but, you know, I want to amass resources and take over the world as opposed to going and beating people up. I want to kind of outgrow them. Hmm. So we took this video game and we developed two different ads, uh, an ad for the men, an ad for the women, thinking that men were the primary target because at that point, 65% of gamers were men and only 35% were women. So they're a secondary target. We wanted to see, could we hook these women somehow for this same game using a different message? But at the same time, we want to make sure we don't alienate the men right, right, because right. the whole idea of segmentation and targeting is that you feel like you've been targeted. You're like, oh, that's for me. They're talking to me. I want this, right? So we want to make sure we, we didn't do that. So because the men were a primary target, what we did is we, um, we randomly showed people uh, one of three sets you could either see the male ad and then like a reminder male ad a simpler one 
the male ad and then the female ad, or the female ad and then the male ad. And then we looked at all those various combinations to see what happened. And what we discovered is that, first of all, you are more excited when you see your own ad. Big surprise. That's you know what we went in expecting. What was interesting that we hadn't expected is that if you are interested in the product and you see the other ad and then you see your ad, you actually like it best. So it's like the first ad sort of piqued your interest, but the second one kind of closed it. Oh, wow. So there's always a question in advertising, and we can think about this now in the digital world with attribution, which matters first, the first message you saw, the last message you saw, and ours, the last message mattered. But the really cool thing was that the women's ad didn't piss the men off. Hmm. They were like, oh, I get a first-person shooter and I can do more. And so there's this idea that if you're going to target two different segments, can you make the messages synergistic? Mm -hmm. A lot of times what companies try to do is they try to satisfy. How can I make a message that's good enough for men, but also good enough for women? Mm -hmm. And we actually found you could have strong messages to each if they added new information and they helped build a more robust picture, not contradict, right? We didn't test contradict. That would be the next thing I'd like to do is see like what happens if we give you something that's, you know, ah. Yeah. The other thing, we did it with two samples, one with students and one with real gamers. And what we discovered is that the female gamers actually also really like the male ad. <laughs> so our theory was that that wasn't a very good way to segment the market. Demographics aren't right. very rich. Um, and it, honestly, in the US, if you were a, a gamer and you were a woman, you must like first-person shooter games because mm -hmm. that's all we had. Yeah, <laughs> right. Huh. That's that's really you know um, you, you know I, I've heard segmentation in some ways uh, like you're describing when you turn on the hot water and the cold water you just get lukewarm right. water and so then it's not uh, um, you know good for anything really right. versus the the separate messages there. I'm curious about when you think about like uh, segmentation um, of male versus female. Now with all these digital tools, we can segment even further. I mean, like micro segments based on all the data that platforms like Facebook or Google or uh, third-party platforms have about us. Um, is there a place that you go too far and like you know not just have two different ads, but a hundred different ads with a hundred micro segments? Well, so I think part of the issue is really how are you micro segmenting? A lot of that stuff is still just demographics, mm -hmm. and demographics is just it's just not a great way to evaluate anybody. I mean, demographics don't help you ident identify an individuals potential, whether it's gender, race, hair color, age, I don't care. Demographics are just not a great tool for understanding what's happening in the human mind. The human mind and human behavior are really complex. And so my concern with this micro-segmentation, it's all happening on demographics. So one of the cool things I got to do with my larger budgets is hire like one of the best statisticians in the world to develop us an algorithm that would allow us to optimize on demographics, psychographics, and behavior simultaneously. Cool. So one of the challenges you have in segmentation from a, just a data analytic perspective is whatever variables you segment the group on is where you find differences. So if you segment on demographics, you don't get differences in how they think and you don't get differences in how they do. Mm -hmm. But how do you, you know, so if I segment on behavior often, I don't see any differences in demographics, but I can't do micro targeting or media targeting if I don't have some demographics. Right. So they developed a, an algorithm uh, for, for us that 
or an approach. And it wasn't just for us. I mean, it's published in academic literature. You know, that's what academics do is yeah. they come up with new ideas and publish them. Um, so I was able to publish while I was at Lilly because we took all of these new techniques and published them in academic literature. Um, but to figure out how do we get some demographic segmentation simultaneous with attitudinal and behavior segmentation. Cool. And so that's the challenge I see with micro-targeting is it, it doesn't have the richness of what's really going on in people's minds. The other thing I have as a challenge with micro-targeting is that they almost never vary the message. You know, so if all you do is use it to pinpoint people who might be interested in your product and then you talk to those 100 people, those 100 different groups the same way, right, right, right. you've missed the whole point. I mean, frankly, I get pissed with marketers. <laughs> I've given you all my behavior. Yeah. Could you please give me something back that's personalized to what you know? Yeah. Well, you don't even bother looking at it. You just like, you know, pull this segment and then st send the same template out. Yeah. Yeah, it's a huge challenge for marketers, that creative uh, delivery and the automation of that. So yeah. what do you think the solution would be to that? I mean, as a marketer, it's very easy for me to go in and use technology to find a bunch of different segments. But to your point, if I blast everybody with the same message, I'm pissing everybody off. Right. So how do you, or how would you suggest marketers start crafting personalization and personalized messages? So I think it starts by trying to understand not a hundred segments, but three or four or five. I mean, the most I've ever implemented at once was eight segments. Mm. So um, we had a product category that was very complex. And so there were eight patient segments. And so teaching people eight segments and how to understand in, in different products for different segments is really complex. And that's just eight. So as, a, as I have dealt with, I do some consulting work and doing segmentation for other companies. You know, it's pick four and just be really great with each of the four of them. And so if you know I have these four groups I'm talking to, you can't just look at the data. You actually have to bring these people in and talk to them. It's not just automating it, but you need the depth. I mean, that's, the, I think, the biggest challenge of marketing is it's both an art and a science. And so we're using all the science stuff, but we forgot the art somewhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, and it's hard because this data is really cheap. Yeah, <laughs> and this yeah. other one is really hard to execute. But for example, we had segmented physicians for Prozac, you know, way back when, before it went off patent. And we could recruit doctors in that we knew which segment they belonged to. They'd walk in the door and you could tell that they were in completely different segments. Huh. Like you could just watch their body language. So like one segment, it was like very um, academic thought, you know, leaders and very uh, rational in their decision making. And they would come in in suits and they would sit at the table with their hands on the table. Wow. And this other group was like very much more sort of holistic and interactive with the patients and they would come in they fill up their plates and come to the table and they would eat off each other's plates <laughs> and they're talking at the same time and they're like very you know easy going and all this and you're like wow yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you got to find these people you got to you know we talk about personas but the only way to really have a persona is that is to have a person is to have a person yeah. <laughs> it's like this is what i tell people when in my classes when because i teach segmentation techniques and i teach how to use segmentation i'm like the idea isn't to craft a description of somebody the idea is to identify someone you know who is this segment mm -hmm. 
And, and just like, you know, that Mel Gibson movie, right, where he can hear what women say or what people think. <laughs> Remember that one? I forgot what the name was. With what Helen women Hunt. want. What women want. Written by a man. <laughs> <laughs> but to the extent that you can actually be in their heads yeah. and put that down and then say, well, if I was this person, what would I want? What, you know, I always say that the challenge with, well, I have, I kind of use a different definition for marketing in my classes. I say, and some people hate this, so I'm just going to tee that up to start with, that marketing is the process of changing behavior in favor of your brand. And so what does it take to change behavior? I mean, can you even change your own behavior? Sometimes. Can right. you change the behavior of your family members who know and like you? Can you change the behavior of strangers? Yeah. <laughs> so how do you do that? Well, first you have to figure out what are they doing? So that's where our data is. Then you have to figure out, well, why are they doing that? Well, you know, that right there is an art form. Right. Then you have to figure out, well, what behavior will change? And then you have to figure out, well, how am I going to change it? And there's some behaviors that are not changeable, right? Let's Starbucks via. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're trying to get Americans to drink freeze-dried coffee. Right, 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 which is like a giant thing everywhere else but here. Right? Everywhere else but here. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, I mean, I think they felt that that was a success. That product actually turned grocery store um, coffee sales, increased it to double digits, down wow. from like 2 or 3%. So it had a major impact in the marketplace, but, you know, it took like three years to sell a million. Right, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so. Um, so switching just a little bit uh, here, you, you're talking about segmentation and altering your message. So understanding your persona, under, uh, altering your message to reach those folks. feels like there are more channels to reach consumers than ever before, and that level, that number of channels is just multiplying. Uh, we can look at digital channels, the emergence of uh, Snapchat. We can look at voice-based UIs. We can look at augmented reality. Um, you're a professor. How are you teaching the, your students to stay on top of any of this stuff? I mean, is your yeah. syllabus like changing mid-course mid or something? <laughs> or how are you preparing students to address this world? It's terribly difficult. And of course, you know, all the textbooks we use are like, you know, 10 years out of date. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> And what I often say is, you know, we always used to have this triangle. It was like right target, right message, right time. And now we have a rectangle, right target, right message, right time, right place, right? So the where you get your messages is the place where we've seen all this growth. Um, so about six years ago, I, I knew that I needed to do something different. So I took six months as the vice president of a startup in the um, in corporate marketing tech. Yeah. <laughs> so Love I it. could learn... What is email marketing? What is Salesforce? What's, you know, marketing automation that lays on top of it, you know, blogging, social media, and all that kind of stuff. So even that experience is now six years old, right? So um, locally, I do a lot of work um, with startups. So that's one place where I keep fresh is because yeah. I see all the new ideas that, you know, they're doing. And here in Indy, we're so blessed. We have like about 100 marketing tech startups. So everybody's coming at this from a slightly different angle. Um, and for me, you know, w one of the reasons I went to MIT in the first place is I think like a computer thinks, like I understand how it works. So I understand technically how the internet works and how all that, so it's, I can envision what some of these ideas are. So that, that helps. But I also subscribe to a lot of information scanning. So 
I get the daily, you know, emails from Salesforce, Oracle, Marketing Profs, mm -hmm. Seth Godin, Daily Relevance, MIT, Harvard, you know, my inbox is full. So I can cherry pick yeah. and, and see those kinds of things. As I discover new things, like last night I was going into a digital marketing class and I was using Amazon as an example of a company that does great at successful conversions and looking at well, why, why is that the exemplar? And you know, that afternoon there was an ad age piece that Amazon's rolled out this $500,000 a year, you can have your website inside your Amazon webpage. Mm -hmm. Pull it up in class, there you have it, that's the latest. Yeah, that's right? cool. So I do try to keep track of that. I mean, do I get it all perfectly right? No, I mean, I'm probably still a good year behind, but I try, I don't just use the text, I use a lot of the resources we have. I bring in guest speakers. I've got five guest speakers coming in from the local community. That's awesome. This semester, remember that's how I met you. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> at Exact Target. It's like, nobody in my my textbook doesn't understand Exact Target. I need someone from Exact Target to come into this class yeah. and explain how marketing is changing. Yeah. So I try to reach out um, and I, I stay pretty connected to you know people. Yeah. Um, from that standpoint. My latest thing I've just read about, I was like, whoa, ah, this is a real cool idea to think about, is dark data. Mm -hmm. Yes. Ah, when I read dark data, I was like thinking dark web. I'm mm -hmm. like, ooh, no, dark data is data you've collected, but you don't know how to shine a light on. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yeah. What if we could get that? Mm -hmm. Well, there's so much productivity laying around that we haven't even thought about how to access. Yeah. Oh, I love it. You know, you, you have a, uh, a different take on this from other professors that I know. So I, I, I think your, your students are pretty fortunate, and I also want to recruit them. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, a, I'm kind of in the, uh, an odd spot in academia. So I started out as a tenure-track professor, which would be very research-oriented, and discovered that I'm a pretty fun teacher. Mm. Um, and so I'm technically what's called clinical at the Kelly School, which means that my job is to bring practice into the classroom That's good. so That's I do really a good. lot of community outreach and then I publish on practical things mm -hmm. which means I mean I still publish so <laughs> I'm still doing research I'm a researcher at heart but my stuff isn't going to get into like the top tier journals that would be required from a, a tenure track professor sure. so I have a little bit more flexibility yeah. in terms of um, what I choose to do the yeah. beauty of an academic career I'm in control of what's yeah. important to me so other people think you know practical things are too lowbrow fine I'll do them yeah well it's I mean that's certainly in startup land that we need the practical experience um, from day one from these uh, students so uh, I'll, uh, I'll vote one in your favor <laughs> um, well, one last question you, you feel like it seems like uh, on this podcast we explore the new new thing always what's new you seem full of surprises from being a marketing major at MIT to um, you know uh, uh, all, you know awesome depth in your different roles. If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? What 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 else is surprising about you that uh, might be coming next in the future? Well, I'd love to say that I would be a uh, pro mountain bike racer, oh. but um, I've discovered that that's way too scary to try and make money at. <laughs> <laughs> just fun on the sidelines. No, what I discovered when I was at Lilly is that medicine is really cool. Mm. And I sort of, I didn't know then, but if I could do it again, I think I might have done something in the medical field. 
I think of it as an art and a science as well. And so we think of doctors as being all scientific, but there's a whole lot of really cool intuitive stuff. So I was a little disappointed when I was at Lilly that I didn't know the medical side of the business as well. I mean, I think being a scientist kind of person, that would you know be, be my concern working for um, a company whose job is to make bodies better. <laughs> so, and, and it was always interesting to me, they called them molecules. Like I always think of products that you sell as brands, mm -hmm. and but it really is, it's a molecule. It's constrained by what it can do by the chemistry of it. Yeah, so yeah. Um, I think understanding some of that chemistry would have been pretty cool. But by the time I figured that out, I was like uh, 38. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, in my opinion, a little late to get started on a whole new field. Funny. Well, another PhD maybe in your future. Uh, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> I think I might be about education doubt. Oh, funny. Well, if I went someplace, it would be go to go back and start coding again. It's been a long time since I did that, but I'm just such a perfectionist. I think it would take me too much work to get back up to speed. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Well, who, who knows what the future will bring for Dr. Kim Saxon, our guest, or uh, marketing tech and, and uh, everything in between. We're so fortunate to have you on, on the podcast today. Uh, looking forward to um, following uh, your research and publications in the future. Thank you. Thank you.